Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Campus Waterfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Christians, and it's been a, it's been a while uh, since we've had a podcast come up just because uh, the end of hunting season, but uh, had an idea during the hunting season to continue uh, getting content for you guys during the off season. And what we've come up with is kind of what I'm going to call it the just waterfowl research tour uh, to start, but that might change over the years. But what it is now, just given our partnership with Ducks Unlimited this last season, um, I was able to get in contact with Dr. Mike, Mike Brazier with Ducks Unlimited, who's the waterfowl scientist. Uh, and he was able to inform me about a program called the just the DU Fellowship. And what I, what we wanted to do, what I wanted to do was travel around, continue traveling around, but highlighting students during the during this uh, off season, but then I think all year round, uh, fine students, grad students who are doing uh, wetland wetland research, waterfowl research. So from there, with that conversation with Mike Brazier, I was able to get in contact uh, with Brett Leach here, who we have on the podcast with us today, and he is a student at the University of Missouri doing research on blue winged teal and their migration routes and uh, stop oversights just but just a ton of things that I'm going to let him talk about because I have no idea. Uh, I'm very new to the, to the research side of things, but um, we'll, we'll get, we're going to talk to him here in a bit. But before we get into the podcast, in addition to kind of the waterfowl research tour, uh, this offseason, we've been able to get in contact with some collegiate uh, DU volunteers and highlight their volunteering experiences, um, through, whether it's the other week we were at DUX in Texas, um, the, tonight I'm actually going down to Ole Miss. They're hosting a crawfish boil, and so we're going to talk to them about hosting uh, an event like that and um, having a good time eating some crawfish. But then um, I think that's we'll, we'll be busy this off season. So I encourage you to tell your friends uh, to subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can watch even this podcast that you're listening to right now. But then also um, learn about waterfowl research, uh, how they're con- uh, how the research is conducted, but then also some of the preliminary results as well. And that's what we're going to be talking about today with Brett. Um, we're going to learn a lot about Brett, his journey through, um, I think we're going to start all the way in high school, I think, where he decided to go this route, but then talk about his experience in college and then leading up to where he's at right now. And also talk about the process of uh, getting this, re- doing this research um, and some of the prelim results that he's finding. Yeah, thanks, Derek, for that intro. Uh, like, as Derek said, uh, I'm a graduate student at the University of Missouri, and I am working on a, a blue and teal telemetry project where we are basically looking at habitat selection uh, during the non-breeding period, as well as uh, migration phenology. So like uh, the time that these birds are initiating migration, terminating migration, um, the number of stopovers that they're using, uh, and the length that they're uh, at those stopover sites. And we're basically tracking these birds from uh, Prairie Canada all the way down to South America. Do you want me to like, go into my background right away? or? Yeah, I think Yeah, I think we might as well um, just jump into your background. Uh, really, I want to ask you, like, at what point, or let's, let's start with, yeah, where, where you're from, where you grew up, and uh, just growing up in that area, what was it like? Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from DP, Wisconsin. It's in uh, the northeast part of the state. And growing up, like my grandpa and uncle like, were really big into hunting and fishing, so they always got me out whenever they uh, were able to. But it was mostly like deer hunting and turkey hunting that uh, they had grew up with. So that's what I did up until uh, high school. And then um, there's actually, we are at the uh, sporting goods store with one of my buddies. I was, I think it was 15 at the time. So he had just got his driver's license and we happened to see some uh, duck decoys on sale. And we're just like, <laughs> I bet that'd be fun. So I think it was just some of those uh, green head gear hot buys. It's like $25 for a dozen of them. So we ended up buying a pack and uh, went out to, uh, so like where I ended up doing most of my hunting was on the Bay of Green Bay. So we went out there and, just fell in love with the sport and then from there like like even in in high school uh did you have an understanding or like did you kind of know what you wanted to do going into college then not really so when i was in high school like i just wanted to do something that i loved um so basically anything that got me in the outdoors is uh what i just 
broadly focused on at the time. And then mm-hmm. um, so I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. They've got a really good natural resource program there. Oh, yeah. And ended up majoring in uh, wildlife ecology research and management. And, like, even when I first started, like, I was like, do I want to do wildlife? Do I want to do fisheries? Like, I was still mm-hmm. a little bit unsure. And I got involved in a uh, student organization called SWAMP. It stands for Students for Wetland Awareness, Management, and Protection. And uh, there's a student that is working on a project where uh, he's just going out to one of the local WMAs where he's doing uh, waterfall counts. And I was just like, you know, like, I got involved with that. Like, I absolutely love duck hunting, and I love getting out in the marsh. And I was just like, I think that's the route that I want to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, so I guess what made you pick the the waterfowl side of things more specifically? Because even in high school, you mentioned like that was kind of a thing that you just picked up at a sporting goods show or a sporting goods store. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess just like so growing up um, on the Bay of Green Bay, like I definitely saw like the habitat changes that uh, mm-hmm. they're facing and everything. So that part just like really interested me as well as. Uh, I guess just like how unique waterfowl actually are. Like you're managing for a bunch of different species, whereas like if you're like a deer biologist, you're just focused on like, I guess like in Wisconsin now, you're gonna be focusing on like your whitetail and elk. Um, But yeah, just like the diversity of waterfowl species and just like how unique each species is, is what really hooked me on with waterfowl. And And at what point in college did you make that like, like you decided to do waterfowl, did you say? More or to focus on waterfowl? My junior year is junior. when I really decided that that's the route that I wanted to go. And so in those programs, like um, I, w- I was a student, uh, did my undergrad at South Dakota State. I was a, an econ major, but I had friends and uh, know people who've gone through like the wildlife and fisheries programs. Um, and I know what I've heard is that it can be very competitive. Uh, program. I feel like even across the, the country, just because how limited jobs are and then just getting experience is, is another thing. And so um, throughout um, high school and then even college, did you have opportunities to volunteer and uh, get like in the field experience to kind of separate you from a lot of other students? Yeah. So uh the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, they're really good about uh, just all the organizations that they've got available. So like, there's the Wildlife Society and then like uh, the program I was just telling you about before, uh, like the Students mm-hmm. for Wetland Awareness Management Protection. And they've got like all sorts of different organizations like that. So it's just, they've got a bunch of different projects going on. So you can like get your name on a list and just come involved that way and start uh, building up your resume. But also like, don't be afraid to like reach out to your like local department of natural resources or anything like that. Um, so throughout uh, my college career, I ended up volunteering with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources with their uh, um, their goose banding and their duck banding as well. And like just having that um, experience is also what really kind of drove me to like the waterfall side of things. Like I absolutely love getting out and catching some birds and uh, just getting out in the field. But yeah, like you're saying, it's a pretty competitive field. Um, but like once you can like start making those connections, like everybody knows everybody. So as long as like you're mm-hmm. working hard and uh, just like trying to get that experience. Um, for me, it seems like each job that I ended up working just kind of uh, fell into one, in, uh, one another. So. Uh, right after I graduated from uh, Stevens Point, ended up going out working for Ducks Unlimited in the um, Prairie Pothole region of uh, North Dakota. Okay. And I was working on their oil and gas disturbance study that they're doing out there. And it was just like an awesome experience. And like, I would definitely suggest like, if you're interested in this field, like don't be afraid to uh, get out and move around, especially with these technician jobs. So you're only working a few months at a time. So a lot of those positions, it's like three to 10 months long and you just can kind of travel around. And I end up going from North Dakota all the way down to Louisiana and just getting that unique perspective of 
like the challenges that waterfowl are facing on the breeding grounds all the way down to the wintering grounds. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that. Uh, so how does that then work with like classes and things like that? Like, especially like during undergrad, I feel like, I feel like you might be kind of limited with your time of how much experience you can, you can actually get volunteering and traveling. Uh, what was that like kind of balancing those two things with all that, uh, undergrad stuff going on and then trying to get experience? For me, it honestly wasn't too bad because a lot of the work that they're, uh, doing, like they're going out on the weekends and then. Um, I guess like with Stevens Point, it's kind of unique that they had like a sanctuary right by the campus. So they did a lot of research mm-hmm. out there. So you could easily go out there for an hour or two uh, during the week as well and not really mess with your classes too much. Um, otherwise, just like with the duck banding, a lot of that is going to be the preseason banding period. So it's not going to be while you're actually like in uh, or while you have classes or anything like that, just during the summer months. Mm-hmm. And then did you guys do your fair share of hunting in the in the uh, fall and in, into the winter as well then up there? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear I hear Stevens Point's a hot spot. Like, well, even I feel like a lot of Wisconsin schools, and there's a lot of them that they do a good amount of hunting and, and they do pretty well. But Stevens Point's kind of, I feel like, at the top. But I'm sure I'll get some messages now from all the other schools. <laughs> But you guys, are you guys uh, getting, like, puddle ducks mostly? Is it you guys hunting just marshes and open fields in that area then, too? So I honestly never spent much time hunting open fields other than for Canada geese. Um, okay. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of these, like, hemi marshes that we're hunting, we're shooting a lot of puddle ducks. Otherwise, like, I spent a lot of time, like I said, going back to Green Bay and hunting diver ducks over there because that's, oh, that's yeah. one thing I really fell in love with was the diver hunting that uh, Green Bay offers. Mm-hmm. Are you guys, and then um, I just wanted to kind of touch on the hunting stuff before we get into uh, the next step is, is your grad study. Um, but like up in the Green Bay, are you guys hunting a lot of the shore for the divers or are you guys doing open water hunts in that area? So most of my experience has just been uh, from shore, but there definitely are a lot of guys going out doing like the layout boats and all that. And mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I just haven't had that opportunity to actually uh, get out there and uh, do that. Just because, like, growing like I guess like throughout college, like none of my buddies like we really didn't have a boat that would be suitable for like layout boat hunting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I've been out of Wisconsin for quite a while now. So because yeah, you're you're in you're in Missouri now, right? Yeah, is that that's correct. you're in Missouri? So yeah, let's let's pivot then. Let's talk about some of your uh, uh, getting going to grad school now. Um, so why did why did you choose the University of Missouri? So uh, I guess like taking a step back, um, I was working down in uh, Louisiana for the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries on one of their uh, speckle belly projects that they're working on, where they're oh. uh, looking at uh, winter habitat use. And I worked for them for mm-hmm. two winters. And during my second year there, uh, my boss, uh, Paul Link, had, he was kind of asking me about grad school and if I'd be interested in it. And I just kind of, like, it was definitely something that I was interested in, especially just knowing that I should probably uh, go on to get my master's if I want to uh, keep working with waterfall and uh, focusing on some of the research side of things. and. Um, he was in contact with uh, my advisor, Lisa Webb, at the University of Missouri, and she's just a really good movement ecologist, and that's why we ended up deciding to bring the project up there. Okay. And that was, and, um, just trying to get timeline together, that was uh, just during your time, like, you're, that was after your undergrad, like, you worked for DU, you said, right, you said you, yeah. you, said you worked for DU right out of college, and then yeah. was that then part of the DU, or was that... Um, you then went to go work down in Louisiana then with Paul? So that was uh, separate from the DU. So the DU position that I worked, it was, uh, I think, a four-month position. So I ended up finishing up in August, and then I stuck around for a few weeks and uh, ended up helping volunteer with some duck banding going on at one of the uh, local national wildlife refuges. 
And during that okay. time, like I saw a job posting for going down to Louisiana and work on their uh, speckled blood project. So I applied for that and gotcha. uh, ended up getting that position. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's just like, you're literally all over the place. And so I, I just kind of just want to share with the, the audience to know it's like, there's a, there's a lot of time from where you start and a lot of different opportunities that do come up and that you might have to take to then get to like where you're going. And so it's quite a story that, that you, they have and just, all over the place it sounds like yeah so, <laughs> so. i ended up going working for du and i did that for two summers and then worked a couple summers in minnesota on their duck banding crew and then <laughs> down in nebraska i worked on a, a bob white coil telemetry project and then i went back up to wisconsin worked on a wood duck telemetry project up there and um after that, I went back to Louisiana, and then when that position ended, hopping back up to Wisconsin, working on their rig neck duck uh, breeding ecology project, and then back down to Louisiana. So I was definitely ready for the something a little bit more stable and uh, not hopping <laughs> quite as much now. And, and so when you say stable, that, that was the point where then you went to the University of Missouri yeah. then? And, um so at that point, so like I said, kind of in the intro, uh, Brett is a recipient of the DU Fellowship uh, Program, where one of eight students is provided funding um, per year to further their, their education, but then also uh, just wetlands conservation and waterfowl research. And so Brett, he was a recipient of that. And was that 2020? Uh, yeah, 2020 I applied. And 2020? Yeah. 2020, 2021 is, is when he, um, was awarded the, I gotta get the, is it the, the Bonnie Castle Fellowship of Waterfowl? That is correct. Wetland in research. And so, um, and that's how I got in contact with him, uh, because Mike Brazier mentioned like, yeah, he's doing some awesome stuff and and with timing, it just worked out perfect where when, (laughs) when I did reach out to Mike and then we got, uh, in contact with Brett that he was actually going to be, um, doing his research uh, down in Louisiana, literally, I don't know, less than, less than a month when we reached out to him, it seemed like. And so uh, I packed my bags, went down to Louisiana and was able to meet Brett and uh, as well as Paul Link. So uh, that was an incredible experience being able to witness uh, just that entire process firsthand and uh, learned, learned a lot during my time, that, during my time there. Uh, but Brett, can you talk about kind of how you got introduced to the fellowship was it your advisor who kind of encouraged you to apply for that fund yeah so like if you're like really interested in waterfowl um there's like a listserv out there that you can uh, become a part of and you can see a lot of these announcements come through and uh so i saw that come through and then my advisor also mentioned like you should really apply for this fellowship um like the funding for my project like it wasn't uh quite like all the way funded but from the time that I started the actual project and uh, just being able to receive the uh, fellowship award uh, was able to complete the, the funding portion of the project. Very cool. And then even, I guess we didn't even talk about this. Um, how come, how did this project even come up? Were you, was this a, um, a, were you kind of continuing the research that they were doing already at the University of Missouri? Or were you kind of the one who started, or you and your advisor the one who started it? So it all kind of goes back uh, to Paul uh, down in Louisiana. So uh, there's this the company that we're using for the transmitters is uh, Ornatella. They're based out of Lithuania. And they finally came out with a transmitter that was small enough and light enough to be able to put on a blue ink teal. And there's just a lot of unknowns when it comes to, uh, like, particularly like the non-breeding period uh, uh, for blue wings. So it's just a perfect opportunity, just like all the stars aligned, and um, we were able to start the project up at the University of Missouri. And then, and that started in, yeah, you said 2020, 2021, that really got... So the we ended up having our pilot season in the spring of 2019, so it was like a full year before I even started grad school. Um, it's like I was in contact with my advisor and like we were pretty sure that um, I was gonna end up being the graduate student for the project. 
and we're just waiting for like I guess like all the forms and everything to go through just to make it official mm-hmm. but so like while I was working for uh Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries um I started putting these transmitters out in the spring of 2019 and then they sent me up to uh Saskatchewan in the fall to put transmitters out up there as well and then uh yeah so like every fall uh well so we originally went to Saskatchewan in the fall and then COVID happened and we ended up relocating to South Dakota from there. But then, yeah, in the springtime, we go down to Louisiana every year to mark these birds as they're uh, migrating back north. Gotcha. And then let's, where should we go from here? We need to um, talk about now just the the process. The, the, well, what you said it's important to know this type of research because there hasn't been much research done on blue wing teal, especially like, like I feel like the band has the banding been going on for quite some time. Yeah. Banding's but, been going on for a while. Um, but it's like the, the transmitter technology, the, the geolocating technology that that's new where now how, how is that important knowing those type, those, that set of data important for just understanding blue wing teal? Yeah, so blue-winged teal, uh, they're different than all other dabbling duck species, so we can't really rely on, uh, like, the information that we're getting from, like, mallards or pintails or anything like that. Um, just because blue-winged teal, they are an early fall migrant or in a late spring uh, migrant as well. And they also winter further south and more widespread than any other North American species of waterfowl. So, like, these birds are going all the way down into uh, South America and uh, during the winter and then all the way up to Prairie Canada uh, during the breeding season. Um, but yeah, like we do have banding data for blue-winged teal, but you can't really like infer the time of migration or anything like that. Uh, just because once those birds get south of the U.S. border, um, those band reporting rates significantly drop off, even though we know a large portion of those blue-wings are uh, wintering uh, south of the border. Gotcha. And, and yeah, like given that it's so new that this technology has been around, it's like, what, what can this lead to? And like, what kind of, um, findings are you guys able to find? So I think it's pretty exciting here, uh, in the coming years where you actually, when you write your report and, and everyone's kind of able to see this and kind of look back on it for like future projects and things. So it's pretty awesome, but let's talk about, um, just the process of get, um, obtaining the birds and then also with the transmitter technology. So you mentioned that you go up to, um, you said South Dakota this last year, just because of COVID, but during the fall, correct? Mm -hmm. During the the winter or the, yeah, the winter back. And then the springtime you're in Louisiana. Um, and that, and that happens. So you're, you're putting on transmitters twice a year, correct? And then can you, go through the process of like what it's like on site in those locations of what's going on and who's all involved and, and kind of just really what I got to experience this last week, this other week. Yeah. So I'll start up, um, in South Dakota. So, uh, it's in conjunction with the Mississippi Flyway Council. Um, so they've got a preseason duck banding crew and they're, I mean, they were out of uh, Saskatchewan and COVID. So then we ended up relocating to South Dakota for that, uh, reason. But I mean, South Dakota, it's still like a breeding hotspot for blue wings. So when we're up there, uh, we're using swimming traps. It's basically just taking chicken wire and you make a circle. It has a funnel on it on uh, one side and you put your bait on the inside and the birds just kind of follow that trap around and we're out there checking those traps every day. So just making sure that those birds aren't being held uh, too long in those traps and then, it's so like the crew uh, with the Mississippi Fire Council it's of three people. So it works out great for trying to get these transmitters out. So we're banding every bird that we end up catching. And then um, one person can record all the data as I'm reading off the numbers and uh, one person holding the bird and said so fit the bird the transmitter. Mm-hmm. And how many transmitters are you putting out per, like when you guys are up in South Dakota and, and Louisiana? So in South Dakota, we are doing 25 units per year. And then uh, Louis, yeah, Louisiana, we're putting 40 out per year. So 
40 per, per year. Yeah. Okay. So, and so. Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, I'm just trying to think. Like, so we were out when I was out with you. We did, was it 12 and 12? Or no, 6 and 6. Yeah, we did 6 and 6 while you were there. So 12. And so you got to go out another couple, a few times and put more transmitters out So by the, or in this calendar year. For our study, uh, so we started in 2019 where we did uh, 10 down in Louisiana and 10 in Saskatchewan. And then the following year we were doing, well, we were supposed to do 30 in uh, Louisiana. And then we got hit with COVID and we're like, we don't know if we're going to even be able to, uh, go up to the breeding grounds this year and be able to put these units out. So we ended up putting all of our units out down in Louisiana. So we ended up putting the 40 out there. And then um, we ended up finding some extra funding once we knew um, they're going to have a banding crew up in South Dakota. So we were able to get an additional, I think, 20 units. And then we had a couple uh, recoveries that were also deploying as well. One thing I got, I was kind of like new to me where when on site, like you see a lot sometimes on social media, just pictures and videos sometimes of how all this research is conducted. But one thing that kind of hit me when I was down in Louisiana was it's like you have the main people there to like help get the birds uh, um, in that in that process of capturing them and then, yeah, banding them, every bird's being banded. But then you have these other groups that come in that are doing all, all uh, waterfall research as well and so like you in particular kind of being one of them but then also when i was there they were doing research on avian influenza mm-hmm. and then there's another group doing avian coronavirus and so and i, I can't remember where they're coming from but it's, it's kind of interesting how um when when birds are available that um when captured other groups are able to come in and make it as as efficient as and effective as possible so that way we're not you're not having different groups out capturing birds and, and things. So I thought that was really interesting uh, witnessing while, while I was there. Yeah, so uh, with this project, uh, so Paul's always, I think the last 10 years, he's been uh, capturing blueing teal in the springtime. And that was all for like the University of Georgia where those two gals are coming over to sample for avian influenza. So it's kind of a long-term project that they've been working on. And that's why we end up catching birds uh, down in Louisiana in the springtime, just because birds are already being caught already. And uh, mm-hmm. end up working out pretty well, putting uh, more units out in the springtime there, just because we are catching large number of birds at a time. So uh, down there, we're using uh, rocket nets. And just because these birds like do build up on the bait piles, um, we end up basically just trying to find as many volunteers as we can get out there. So we've got school groups coming from like Texas and Indiana and all over the place that are coming down to uh, help remove these birds from the net as quick as possible. And uh, that way they are also getting the experience of banding and helping out with putting these transmitters on and everything. Yeah, for sure. And there was, well, there was people there of all ages helping out. Um, and that, and that was really cool to see and have like even the younger uh, folks that were there have that opportunity to to be there and help and and just how quick everything happened like we were like we were waking up at like 2 30 was it like 2 30 in the morning we were waking up that's that's yeah. earlier than duck season and, <laughs> and stuff and so like when you told me that i was like God, you gotta be kidding me <laughs> like i thought i'd get to sleep in on some of these no, no. <laughs> no but yeah like up at 2 30 and then uh and then I guess after that, like, so the net uh, in the, on this, the way we were capturing the birds in Louisiana, is that that net is already all set out on the bank beforehand, correct? Or were you guys, set, were you guys setting that up the, that evening or that morning? So we'll have like the net laid and everything the day before. So we'll make sure that there's plenty of bait and everything to keep the birds interested for like when we're actually trying to uh, do the rocket netting. But then in the morning when we show up, then we'll put the charges in and get everything wired up and then stretch the cord back to the blind where we're going to end up uh, sitting when we shoot the net. Gotcha. And I should mention too, like everyone listening and, w- and watching this podcast. Um, so the, the podcast will come out first, but then in a, in a few days, we'll actually, I'll have a video up uh, for you to watch of our experiences there in Louisiana, um, capturing the birds and then uh, having bread even kind of talking about 
a, a lot what we're going to be discussing in this podcast, but you'll be able to witness it firsthand of uh, on site and in the field. So, um, but then yeah, from there uh, it wasn't. I've I've heard it wasn't the easiest time of year, right? Or when capturing these blue winged teal, because a lot of them that we were finding were they would swim up to the bait, but then they would kind of fly off the bait where rather than sometimes they would kind of group up and stay there. And so in the video, you'll be able to see that. Um, but how many, uh, like how long, how long were we even in the blind waiting to, before the charge went? I'm trying to think. What was it? Maybe 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And is, so with Paul, like he, he's the one, um, the man behind the, the, the button, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's, how does how does that work with with like kind of in the mornings? I remembered you guys were mentioning like like shooting times or like when he can shoot. Is it kind of the same thing like during hunting season where shooting times or with him is he able to shoot kind of before like your typical shooting like hunting season shooting time as long as he has the shot? Yeah, so it doesn't really matter as long as we can uh, make sure that like when we shoot the net off that. There's not going to be, like, birds up on the bank or anything like that. So we want to make sure all those birds are, um, like, butts in the air, on the bait pile, in the water. Uh, okay. So it's just making sure we have enough light for that. But unfortunately, like, when you're there, those birds weren't cooperating all that well. So, like, those birds would no. get up on the bait pile, and they flushed pretty much immediately. So it's mm-hmm. just a waiting game for them. And once they finally grouped up to a number that we're good with catching, then yeah, and it's kind of intense too because it's kind of like uh, Paul. Paul was kind of watching, and I would kind of watch Paul, and he'd kind of he was telling us even that the evening before it happened, the day before too, where the birds were uh, fleeing off the bait. But then it's like you got to kind of pick and choose when you want to do it because it's like the longer you wait and the more times they kind of flee off the bait, the less bait you have. Yeah. And so it's like there's there's a balancing act there where it's like. At, some point like when do you do it but when it does happen it's like in the video you'll be able to see this it's like it is like you are going 100 miles an hour right after that it goes from like super super calm and like being super quiet and then it's just like yeah it's game time yeah so you got all that blind pretty quick (laughs) (laughs) well i didn't want to hold you guys back because i was the one closest to the door when we were down there so but I got to the best part was I got to experience uh, being down there two two days. Got to experience kind of the volunteer side because uh, the volunteer yeah the volunteers aren't there by by the bait side or anything. It's really it was just you and Paul and then I was lucky enough to be there with you guys the second morning. But the first morning the volunteers are probably I, I don't know a few hundred few hundred yards away or whatever, but just out of sight and kind of out of the picture. But they're able to hear. Um, the net go off and then once that hits it's like all right they're on uh on a trailer behind behind a uh side by side and it's like everyone's running to the site to get those birds uh out from underneath the net um and it it does not take too long and so um very impressed on, on how you guys uh went about all of that and and how quick it it did happen um but then so after you do get the birds um in those those crates um where what happens then after that yeah so once we get the uh, birds all loaded up on the the trailers we end up uh driving back out just so we can get a little bit further away from the site so birds can start coming back and uh getting comfortable with uh, feeding at the site again because he tries to shoot these sites every single week uh during the spring migration period um but yeah so Mm -hmm. as soon as we get far enough away from the site um we end up just getting all the birds off the trailer so that way they can get the wind start blowing through them a little bit better and dry out and usually after a few mm-hmm. minutes like uh, these birds will start drying out uh, good enough where I can like, get these transmitters uh, put out on these birds um, so Paul start uh, getting all the birds like let me think so he'll start by getting uh, just like start banding all the birds and then He'll, um, like, whenever he comes across a hen that feels like it's a healthy bird, he'll put it aside in a separate crate, and those are the birds that will end up weighing and making sure that they all meet weight. Uh, so these transmitters are 10-gram mm-hmm. units, and there are some rules that we have to follow. Like, 
the unit can't exceed more than like 3% of the bird's body weight. Um, so yeah, so all the birds I had marked, they have to be at least 330 grams. But like, I also like finding these birds where like when you feel like, if you can feel that keel bone, I try not selecting those birds just because I want to know like that bird's about as fat as it's going to get. And then that way the mm-hmm. units uh, properly fit on the bird. Um, gotcha. And they, and they get banned. Yeah. They get banded by Paul and then they go, do they just go straight to you? Yeah. So Is we're that, only marking the that's adult how? females. And so he'll put the yeah. adult females in a separate crate that'll go to me. And why, and why just females? So, uh, when you think about, um, like, I guess like the population of blue wings are, I guess all day and ducks in general. So males, uh, generally, are more abundant than females. So a lot of these females, they're the ones taking the risk. So like they're going to be the ones sitting on the nest where they're more likely to uh, be predated. So when you're thinking about like the management of blue and teal, or I guess all day and duck uh, species, uh, the female mm-hmm. is the more important cohort uh, to be studying just because they're going to be the ones uh, basically sitting on the nest. And then from there, after you weigh them and they do uh, kind of qualify, they're, they're big enough uh, to be selected to put a transmitter on, then what's the process of then getting the transmitter on? Yeah, so uh, these units, they just sit uh, on the bird's back. Like you'll see in the, if you guys watch the video, it's like a little solar-powered unit that sits on the bird's back between the wings. And we've got two loops. So we've got a loop that goes... It goes around the, in front of the wings, so like in front of the shoulder joints on the bird, and then it goes around and sits on the furcula, which is uh, just the wishbone. And that way you just make sure that the, that strap's not going to slide up at all. And then we've also got one uh, back behind the wing, so it's going to basically sit as far forward, uh, right behind those flank feathers on the side of the bird, and then uh, in front of the bird's thigh. And that'll just help prevent the unit from slipping off and flopping around. So uh, this elastic material that we're using. Um, so since we're finning these units, when the bird's going to be about as fat as it's going to get, uh, there's going to be like a little bit of stretch in that um, elastic material. So as these birds get smaller, like they'll still stay fit uh, to the bird correctly as well. Mm-hmm. And is this is this a, an elastic material that you guys developed? I, I thought it mentioned, or that you guys like, found or something because I was when I was talking to Brett or not Brett uh Paul when I was down there he said like I kind of asked like is that is it going to deteriorate over time with the birds and he said that he had it like just strings of it up in North Dakota going through the winters and just all these different conditions that you guys tested so what was uh where did you guys come across that uh, material yeah so Paul's working I can't remember the name of the company um but he ended up developing a three and a half millimeter wide elastic material whereas Previously, I think it was almost six millimeter wide. So it's almost half mm-hmm. the, the width of the previous material that a lot of people had been using. And just because it is a smaller bird, like is, if we can uh, make the width of that material a little bit less, it's not going to be like rubbing on the bird's thigh or anything like that, just because we are able to get that strap uh, further forward uh, on the bird. So mm-hmm. end up working out really well yeah and so now once you do have all of the teal um that you that you needed then what what's the process then of releasing them like so what we end up doing is especially like in the springtime where we have large number of volunteers we'll hold uh birds without transmitters in a crate as well and then that way everybody will grab a bird and then however many transmitters i've Got all grab enough volunteers to hold those, and what we'll do is that we'll just line up in a line, and we'll let everybody with the unmark or without a transmitter on the bird release their birds in like a split second before uh, we we blah, before we <laughs> release these uh, uh, transmitter birds, and then that way they just have a bird to follow as they fly off, and they seem to fly off a lot better when they got a bird that where they're watching these birds fly off in different directions. Yeah. And then after that point, like, yeah, birds are gone. Your research is, or the, the process of obtaining and getting the, re, the, the transmitters out is all done. Um, 
at what point do those transmitters start sending information back to like you and or sending uh, data back to you? So we've got like we're able to program all these units uh, to like whatever we want it uh, to be set to. So we've got ours programmed to check in uh, once every day. And then these are just using uh, cell towers to be able to transmit the data. So if the bird's not uh, within reach of a cell tower, then it'll just store all the data on the unit. And then the next time that it's close enough to the cell tower at that specific time of day when it's supposed to check in, uh, then it'll transmit all that data. But we've got okay. our location data to set to, uh, you know, coordinate every one to four hours depending on battery life so okay we're getting a lot of data with these units yeah so you said you said one to four hours yeah. it's it's kind of getting a, a checkpoint and then you, it, the data is getting sent back after a 24-hour period yeah, that's that correct okay and then just to reiterate more so yeah if, if you're away from if it's far enough away from a tower where it can't connect or if it's low battery, it just store it's that's all stored internally then, all that those data points. Yeah, and, and then okay. we've had some of our birds, like especially once they get like south of the border and on the breeding grounds, uh, cell coverage really isn't all that great. Um yeah. but we've had birds offline for up to ten months and then are still able to transmit all that data. So they've got pretty large storage Jeez. capacity. That, that's got to kind of be rewarding when that happens. Yeah. Like you, you, you think a bird's like like gone, but it's like yeah, when it does come come back online after that long, it's like you got to celebrate a little yeah. bit, <laughs> and then you get all that data to go through. <laughs> but uh, so then, how many um, transmitters do you guys have out right now? Um, I think we're up to one hundred and seventy-five deployments. One hundred seventy-five. And then that's all within, is it the central flyway or kind of, is it all kind of scattered now at this point? So most of these birds are going throughout the Mississippi and central flyway. Um, we've got mm -hmm. a few birds that end up going to the Atlantic flyway as well. So I think we've had two go to South Carolina and then one down in Florida. But yeah, otherwise it's like during the wintering period, we've got birds most of them seem to be like Louisiana, a little bit Texas. Otherwise, a lot in Mexico, Honduras. Um, I think this last year we had some down in Belize. And uh, the first year of the project, we had birds going down to Venezuela and Colombia as well. So That's crazy. A little bit all over the and place. And then do you know? Yeah. Do you know? Um, and that's the crazy thing. Yeah, blue-winged teal. It's like, yeah, they're winning grounds. They're just kind of all over the place compared to other other ducks. Do you know if there's other uh, people out there in like even like the Pacific and the Atlantic flyway that are doing this type of research and seeing some of the blue winged teals migration paths in those flyways? And I think, well, so for blue winged teals, the technology is like really new. Um, so we really yeah. don't, I guess personally, I don't know who all is also working on uh, similar things. I want to say that there was a group in California that might have put some units on blue wings. But mm -hmm. other than that, there was a transmitter study that they, I guess they also worked with Paul on that. They deployed some units down in Louisiana, but it was on, I believe, adult males. But it's for a different research objective. Um, they're okay. looking just kind of broadly where these birds were going. So... And, and then you said your what can you go over your research objective again like yeah so I'm working on uh, habitat selection during the non-breeding period so uh, spring and fall migration during the wintering time so okay yeah we're looking at four different uh, habitat categories right now so we're looking at uh, emergent herbaceous wetlands uh, woody wetlands open water and cultivated crop and just seeing like what's available to them and uh, what they're selecting for. And then we're also And so it's not at... necessarily... Oh, 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 say that again. Oh, no, oh, you can go ahead. Gonna... <laughs> All right. Yeah, you go. And then we're looking at uh, <laughs> uh, migration phenology as well. So just the timing of migration and uh, the use of these stopovers and how long they're spending at each of these stopover sites. Okay. And can we... 
Uh, are we able to kind of discuss some of the, the pre- preliminary results that you guys you've been finding and any any surprises that you've come across? Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, these are all uh, preliminary results. So we've still got data rolling in. So we're trying to incorporate these mm-hmm. as we go. But um, from one of the presentations that uh, I'd given earlier this year, um, I think is up until we had data until like the spring of 2021 that we included in it. So uh, just looking at like migration initiation, like I said, like these birds are uh, late spring migrants. So like they're not, let me see, I got it pulled up right here. Um, so yeah, we, we're finding like a mean departure date of uh, April 22nd from when they're actually leaving these wintering grounds. And okay. I guess it's like, to me, like the surprising part was like how long these birds are staying like in their wintering patterns. So basically mm-hmm. like, what they're doing from the time that they arrived until the time that they left, most of those birds never left like a five kilometer area. So, Jeez. yeah, so these, these birds are getting in an area and hardly ever leaving it. Um, but yeah, and then uh, a lot of these birds are, we found a mean arrival date to the breeding grounds of May 11th. So I guess that kind of lines up well with uh, when a lot of these birds are uh, initiating nests up on the breeding grounds. And then mm-hmm. I guess kind of going into uh, fall migration, uh, it is important to keep in mind that we're only marking adult females. So uh, we know that adult males, they migrate earlier. So um I definitely wouldn't be looking at these numbers and be like, oh, we need to move our teal seasons or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so in the fall, we end up finding that a lot of these birds, they're not departing until uh, late September. And then they're arriving uh, to their wintering grounds late October. So I guess just like if you start looking at like the duration of uh, migration for these birds, like in the spring, uh, we found that it's, uh, right around between like four and I think 30 days that it's taken these birds to migrate from the winter grounds to the breeding grounds. And that it does line up with uh, previous data and duck research uh, for yeah. how long it takes to get up there. Um, even And you said, what was that again? Four to seven days? Uh, four to 30 days. Or, so oh, it's four pretty to 30 variable days. between birds. Like, yeah, there is a range. Yeah. There. And then... Uh, I think it was during the, let me pull it up so I don't get it wrong here. Yeah, so then, <laughs> like, the, I guess, like, the mean was right around 20 days in the spring for how long it took them to get there. Okay, to get back up. And then uh, in fall, it was also very variable for uh, when these birds, or um, how long it's taken these birds to get to the wintering ground. So it ranged between, like, yeah. a day and a half and 45 days. Oh, yeah. Do you think like those ranges will then like slowly come or like reduce over time as you get more data and then as maybe potentially over the years, like more people doing this type of research and you can kind of dial in on lower, like uh, closer ranges, I guess? I mean, you get a lot of variability between birds. So it really just kind of depends on like if the bird's getting like all the, like, the nutrients and everything that it needs to be able to complete migration. So if it makes like a big jump from like, South America uh, to like say Louisiana, it's gonna have to stop and rest for a while, especially just after that, making that big migration across the Gulf. Um, but so I think you're still gonna see these like large um, gaps of time where it's these, these yeah, ranges. but mm-hmm. where you're gonna see your uh, differences would be like the if you look at like the mean uh, duration time. So. Okay. Like in the fall, we end up finding a mean duration of about 30 days, so about 10 days longer than spring migration. And if you start thinking about it, like it makes sense. Like in the fall, they don't really have those pressures, but they have to get south. Whereas like in the springtime, a lot of these birds, they're going up to the breeding grounds and they've got to find uh, a suitable nesting site. So it mm-hmm. makes sense that in the spring that'd be uh, a little bit less. 
Mm-hmm. And you and you also mentioned like so the, the stopover sites are like during the migration, like how many times they're stopping mm-hmm. um, in places. How, did you mention the number or uh, how many times are on average are they stopping during the migration to and to and from? I guess. Um, I gotta see if I can find this again. Or else I'm gonna get those <laughs> numbers wrong. <laughs> no, 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 take your time. Let me see if I have it in this other. I think it's I think it's cool. Yeah, like this is like first research or like yeah, the first research that has been done on this kind of stuff. And so being able to hear you uh talk about it and, and share it with us, it's uh pretty awesome. <clears throat> All right, yeah. So in the spring, uh we ended up finding that uh, on average, it'd be about uh, five sites that these birds are stopping at. Whereas, really? And it ranged between like two and seven. So um, mm-hmm. a little bit of variability. Um, so, like, I mean, it, it could just be like a weather system's coming through and it's just not energetically like as feasible for these birds to be migrating. So they might have to stop as well. But yeah. And then if you start looking at like fall, um, they end up stopping at fewer sites during the fall. So it's, the mean was right around three sites that these birds are stopping at. And then, mm-hmm. um, and so like in the springtime, they're obviously stopping at more sites. So like the duration at each of those sites, uh, it was a little bit uh, less in the spring. So it was right around four days at each of these sites. Whereas in the fall, it was almost nine days that these birds are stopping. It's a lot of information to take in. It is. It's a short amount of time. <laughs> I'm trying to just kind of go through it in my head. That way I can have a follow-up question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so so when it comes to, like, obviously, I think a, the weather has a big thing or a big impact on when these birds are leaving to and from. Uh, they're, they're falling or when they're starting, uh, they're falling spring migration routes. Are you guys, like, taking in account those maybe those bigger storms of when those storms are occurring or, or like whenever those pressure changes happen, um, or are you t- using research from other projects to kind of take into account? So uh, we haven't taken that into account at all yet. Um, it is something I'm interested in, but it might be a little bit beyond like what I'm uh, trying to do for like my master's work. But mm-hmm. I mean, they're, I think they're talking about bringing uh, or try to bring another student on to work with the data as well. And, that is definitely something that uh, people could be looking into. So just trying to figure out what these drivers of migration are for blue wings, just because like, obviously it's not, I mean, they're, I guess they're just not quite as um, weather driven as uh, like say like a pintail or a male or where like everything's okay. freezing up on them as they're yeah. migrating. So they just kind of have the, thing in their head they're like oh it's that time of year yeah. <laughs> let's head out <laughs> no definitely huh. something for future research to, to be looking at mm-hmm. and what about so your research that you're doing um how will that kind of like what kind of changes do you guys do you kind of see happening or just having this data now how will that help make decisions um kind of for all of us who are maybe waterfowl hunters or or even outside of our realm of for just research purposes how how does your research benefit i guess society i guess like the the biggest thing uh since we're looking at migration phenology and habitat selection uh just knowing like when these birds are actually migrating through an area so we're also kind of looking at like the critical breeding stopover and wintering areas so we can kind of focus on uh, which regions are most important for bluing teal and just making sure that people are able to to uh, provide that habitat when these birds are actually coming through an area and being able to provide the habitat that they're actually selecting for. Gotcha. So it's not really, it's not, it is benefiting society, but it's also, it's more importantly benefiting the blue winged teal. Yeah. And I mean, like, if you start looking at, um, like a lot of these transmitter birds, the, the level of fidelity that they have to these sites is actually pretty mm-hmm. high. Uh, so these birds are going back to the same sites that they were uh, previously at. So say like if you're managing your like grown wetland, just making sure you've got water at a particular time, 
Um, it's like a lot of these, I guess, especially with blue wings, since they're migrating early, um, people may not have uh, the water available across the landscape like uh, they do, like, say, when mallards start showing up. So just being able to provide, like, some of that early habitat uh, would be beneficial for uh, hunters as well. Yeah, I don't know. Covered a lot so far. I'm going to make sure I don't have any other last questions. Um, start to finish. No, I think we've kind of, and you kind of mentioned already some of the things that surprised you the most in this project, haven't you? Some of the, um, the sites that they're choosing and was it the, um, just how small of an area that they actually do cover when they, uh, in the, the, in those stopover sites. Yeah, that was probably like one of the most surprising things uh, for me is just like how small of an area that these birds were actually utilizing. Um, and then it's just been really cool watching like the fidelity to these sites. So, so like there's a bird that we had marked up in uh, Saskatchewan. It wintered down in uh, the terrible marshes of Louisiana. And then it went, I think, up to South Dakota to breed. And then it went back to like the exact same part of the marsh uh, the following winter <laughs> as well. That's crazy. Yeah. Now with now with any of these like outlier blue winged teal, I, I think I asked you this when I was down in Louisiana. Uh, do you ever like name the birds of like turbo or or anything like that, <laughs> I, <laughs> or like high fly or anything? <laughs> I haven't named any of birds yet. So <laughs> if anybody's got Dang some it. good names, they can send them my way. <laughs> Just, yeah, I, I feel like with like the data that you're getting, like there's got to be at least one bird that's maybe flying a little bit higher than all the other <laughs> ones, or or lower in, when it's flying. Because like even I, we didn't touch on this, but like those transmitters, like you're getting kind of like what all what kind what kind of data are you getting from these transmitters? Yeah, so these uh, units are recording like the latitude, longitude, uh, the speed of the bird, altitude, um, temperature, and we're also collecting ACC data, so it's accelerometer data, so it's getting a X, Y, and a Z uh, position. So it basically tells you like what that unit is doing at that time. And that's been really beneficial for us just uh, when you're looking at uh, birds that are starting to nest because you can see like, as those birds are stationary and not moving at all, and then you can see them make their daily foraging flight. And then okay. it just basically kind of like flat lines again uh, while those birds are sitting on that nest. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if and we're kind of going on even another another subject or like miscellaneous questions now about your project. But so now like you have all that that data um, are other I don't I don't know if it's in the research world, if you can do this or not. But are um, say someone else is having a study, but they're studying something else, but they need that kind of same data that you're already collecting. Are they able to are you guys able to work in partnership to then you provide that data to them? And what they're trying to find yeah that's uh definitely something that like we're all trying to like work together on this so um i mean there's particularly with mallards like there's people marking birds all over the place and i think a lot of those guys are sharing their their data with each other as well um okay yeah so i think paul's working currently with like a couple different universities with the mallards that he has marked um but yeah right now there's Really not. Well, there's nobody that I know of that's actually putting these units out on blue and teal, so not mm-hmm. a whole lot of uh, collaboration with that part of it. Gotcha. But so then now, uh, once so what? When does your uh, when does your project or your study kind of come uh, to an end? Then what do you have to draw a conclusion and write your the thesis and everything? Well, I should be writing this summer, so hopefully finish up in <laughs> December. Well, that's the plan, at least. That's the plan, yeah. yeah. And how long of a report do you get, do you have to write? Uh, is it like in grad school? Do they give you like a page minimum, where you got to write, or as long as you have all this these all this data or like all the information in that report? Uh, it's to to share. It's going to be as long as we have like all of our information. Like they don't have like yeah. a set page number or anything like that, but. As long as we're like including like, justifying like why we're doing the project, um, just kind of outlining our methods that we end up using in uh, interpreting our results, and then mm-hmm. kind of um, using like the information and explaining like how this can 
benefit management. And then from there, then say, so we're at a point where you did all the time, you put all the time and work in completing your, your thesis, you got the report done. Uh, what happens after that? So I've got, uh, I guess, like three different chapters I'll be writing for uh, my thesis. And I'm hoping to be able to publish on all of them. So getting uh, publishing in some of these scientific journals and then uh, just making sure that the information's out there and available uh, to managers okay. mm-hmm. that we can mm-hmm. better manage for Bloom Deal. Mm-hmm. And then, so do you even think after uh, after grad school and then after this project, you'll continue working with Blue Wing Teal, or will you pursue maybe other ducks or and try to do other re- projects? I mean, I would definitely be interested in um, like if they bring on another student for this project, I'd be interested in helping out however I can. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm not strictly uh, a bluing teal person, so I'll, I'd definitely be willing <laughs> to work with all waterfowl species. I should I should mention that blue, that that teal beer that we were having down in Louisiana in the evenings. That hey by the because that's that's put up by by a brewery. Uh, in Louisiana, and what you and Paul were saying, five percent of those proceeds of of that beer actually go toward your guys's project. Yeah. And so I don't know. After after trying that beer, it's it would be pretty hard to to go away from the Blue Wing Teal. I think. <laughs> well, all the all but, the Southerners that are listening should definitely go and pick some up and try it. Yeah. Something else. It's a pretty cool looking can. Um, but no, I think yeah. There's there's a lot of different things that you're able to pick from, especially with yeah, your experience that we were talking earlier about, and then to now your your thesis kind of being the first ever to kind of be able to do this type of things, and and I think um, for for work, you, there's a lot of different opportunities you you could go up with, um, and so what would I should I should ask then too, like what would you, your work be like after college and everything, like what would kind of a, a title, like a job title, kind of that you would kind of obtain then uh after college i mean it could be uh kind of variable i guess so um okay i definitely like want to stick with like the waterfall biologist um side of things so uh i'd be interested in like the habitat management as well as like continuing uh research on uh waterfall as well but i mean there's all sorts of different positions that end up opening doors too so like I see like a lot of positions through like Ducks Unlimited uh, and their conservation planning side of things where uh, positions are opening up and it'd definitely be something that I'd be interested in as well. Yeah, it's whenever you see or whenever I see kind of just titles come up, there's just so many different ones. And then two talking with students uh, during the, the tour this last season, like just all the different, all the terminology that they're talking, it's like they sound similar, but they're very different at the same time. And so trying to, me, me trying to figure out, and I think the audience trying to figure out too, uh, what's out there for them and, and what you guys are doing, um, bring some clarity a little bit to, to what you guys are going for. Mm-hmm. So, um, but no, I think, um, I think we're kind of wrapping up here on the podcast. Um, do you want to share what's, what's a good way to get in contact with you, Brett? And then also, um, if people are wanting to kind of follow your journey and your research, where's a good place for them to find that? Well, unfortunately, I'm not really on social media much or anything, but... Come on, Brad. <laughs> no. Um, but no, like, if anybody has any follow-up questions, they can shoot me an email or anything like that. Um, is there a way you can add that to the screen or... No. Yeah, I can, like, for the YouTube video, I can pop up something or I can put it in the description. Right. Um, yeah, I can, I, can, I can do that. All right, but yeah, so feel free to shoot me an email if you've got any any questions about the research that we're working on that's sweet no i can't i can't thank you enough for uh allowing me to, to first come come down there to louisiana to be a part of that weekend of uh your the research and and you sharing with everyone uh, about what you're doing your journey here in the in the upcoming video uh and on this podcast brett uh, appreciate everything that you that you do your dedication to um, waterfowl and the research and conservation and everything, uh, what you're doing is, yeah, is, is the first, is the first to, to really in the, in the research side of things when it comes to blue wing teal and their, uh, migration routes and stopover sites and habitat selection. So, 
Um, I hope everyone was able to to learn something. Make sure if you are really interested in uh, waterfowl research and uh, biology, ecology, all this, all this stuff, give this a second uh, listen through because I'm sure there might be a couple things that you might have missed with how much data we're talking about and things that uh, Brett had mentioned. So, um, and and don't hesitate. Like, uh, I really encourage you to reach out to Brett if you do have any questions because uh, he has a ton of experience like you did here and I'm sure he'd be happy more than happy to help answer any questions he might have um Brett do you have any closing do you have any uh last advice for anyone that's listening that that may be in high school college or in the process of kind of the same route that you might be in yeah I guess like the biggest uh, piece of advice I could give would be uh just not to be afraid to reach out to people and get involved. Um, like I said earlier, it's a really small field where everybody knows everybody. Um, so yeah, just reaching out to people to try and get involved as much as possible and, uh, not be afraid to move around for a couple months and experience new areas. And, um, I mean, you can always get back, uh, home, but I mean, just like working all these different technician jobs, like those were probably some of the greatest years that, um, just like with all the uh, different people I've met and everything. So yeah, just not be afraid to get involved. There you go. All right. Well, you guys heard, heard it from Brett himself, but uh, Brett, <laughs> I appreciate, I thank you for your, for your time this morning and, and yeah, jumping on this podcast means a lot. We'll uh, get this published here on YouTube, pot, uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify and everything. And, and people can uh, give it a listen. So, all right. Thanks for having me. But, but I think, yeah, no problem. Take care. And yeah, look forward to chatting with you again once you're all done uh, with your thesis and we can kind of hear uh, the final results of your project. Absolutely. Sweet. All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it here for the Campus Waterfall podcast. Uh, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to let me know because um, that will give me an idea to whether or not we need to continue doing more types of uh, having more conversations like this and meeting up with people like Brett uh, in the field, sh- them having them share their project or sharing their research with us. Um, and that way you got, gives you guys a chance to learn what's happening behind the scenes and uh, uh, during the off season of uh, waterfowl hunting that, that we all enjoy. But uh, I think that's going to do it here for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Uh, YouTube and leave a comment and review the podcast as well on Apple and Spotify. But appreciate you all for listening. Uh, We'll see you all in the next one.